going to do this lesson as if it's Advent Sunday, number three, because we are heading into Advent three, the third week of the four weeks of waiting before Christmas. I'm doing that for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, we've been trying to do some Advent theme sermons in the month of December here to really prepare our hearts for the Christian season. I know it's a Christian holiday, but you all, we all know that it's a very secular holiday as well. And and that's worth celebrating too, because what holiday you know emphasizes giving and family and love? That's a beautiful thing. Um, I, I don't think we have to dispense of the secular side to enhance the sacred side of Christmas, but we also can realize that our church history it has celebrated this season for a lot longer than one day and, and for a whole lot more reasons than handing out gifts. And trying to tap into that is, is part of what I'm trying to do this year, is for my own walk, really trying to pay attention in Advent to this season of waiting. And so this message is, is really what I would kind of aim for on, on a Sunday for Advent. I'm not preaching Advent this weekend at our church in South Carolina. I have someone else, young man in our church, that's going to preach. So I'm going to be there, but um, I was that that puts me behind on putting things up, like because what I preach on Sunday then goes up on the next Sunday on my website. So I'm going to hold on to this one for a couple of weeks and then use it on a Sunday, and we'll just slot it right into the Advent run that we've got going. Uh, I say that so that you will know that you can watch or listen to a sermon that we're going to put up tomorrow that's never been released. Um, it's a message that opened my trip to the Netherlands. I did a, a Thursday in the Netherlands with a, with a room full of pastors and worship leaders and uh, church leaders, and they, we had three sessions, and they were all around 60 minutes, 70 minutes apiece. The first session, they're all in English, no translation, no translator needed. And so I've just kind of sat on those since we got back, but I'm going to put one up tomorrow. Uh, by the time this airs, that's in the past. So go look for Netherlands 2023 session one. I didn't title it anything other than that because it's me reading a text and then addressing a room of leaders and really just letting it flow. I mean, it's not that nice, tight outline, point, point, point illustration bring it back to a scripture kind of sermon. It's more of a, here's a scripture, read it, talk about Jesus. Here's what we ought to do with our uh, churches and our ministries. So check that out if you would. Come on in, Jackson. Enjoy. <laughs> um, so with that in mind, let's, let's begin this thought of rejoice always. And I'm going to, of course, derive this from a text in the New Testament, but when we think Advent, we don't, we don't think New Testament as much as we think Old Testament because we're in an anticipation season. And so we're going to start in the Old and, and then work our way into some of the principles of the New. Um, this is it. This is the beginning of the Christian calendar. The month of December is where we, really, we get this thing started, which is odd because um, you know, in our secular world, the calendar starts in January. In our Christian world, it starts in December, but it starts in the darkest time of the year. It starts where the days are short and the nights are long. And there's something very fitting about that. Because all of our beginnings are in darkness. We, we come out of the womb from the dark into the light. And the, and the whole Bible starts in darkness. And the light speaks into the darkness. And the darkness doesn't comprehend it. And the Bible is almost this, this contrast between the darkness and the light over and over and over again. Um, and of course, then comes Jesus. The light into the middle of whatever our darkness is. And so the, the beauty of that, the positive, I mean, because when you talk about darkness, that's not fun. But the, the beauty is that darkness is potential. 
Like there's always hope. There's always something that can be birthed out of that. And, and so Advent then becomes a season of hope. It becomes a season in which we, and, and we start the season with hope. And then Advent too, we talk about peace, the peace of God that passes all understanding. And then that leads us into this third week, which is a, a week of joy. And why joy? Because it kind of comes out of left field. You're in darkness, you're in waiting, you're in anticipation, you don't have joy. Um, not yet. Joy feels like it shouldn't happen until you get to the baby Jesus. But joy, um, and, and it's the, the, when you light the Advent candles, the joy candle, the third candle is uh, the shepherd's candle because they're the ones that proclaim the joyous news of Jesus' arrival. Um, but it feels like it's wrong <laughs> to have joy in the midst of the darkness. And, and this is not one of those things that we're just trying to hype up your joy about what's to come but to try and show you that joy should exist in the middle of a darkened world. Um, the news of the world is sad. The news of the world is angry. The news of the world is often fearful and almost always vengeful. And if you feed on the news of the world, and I'm not, I'm not talking just cable news. I'm talking if you feed on the information being given to you by the systems of this world, then you are prone to anger and fear and vengeance and malice and you can't help but be because these are toxic things being pressed into you from the world around this is part of the reason why christians have to have the disciplines of silence meditation prayer study church not because they need to do those things to go to heaven but because they need to do those things in a world offering them a toxic diet and the world has such a toxic diet that if we aren't putting word and prayer and time alone with god and we're going to put something in and what's going to get in becomes those things that, as the Bible says, does so easily beset us. The weights and the sins that just kind of drag us down. And too many times we, when we think of weights and sins, we think of stuff we do. But I think it's a lot of the stuff that we take in. And we just keep taking it in until we're infuriated. So you meet a lot of Christians who are just, they're mad all the time. They're mad about the government. They're mad about the economy. They're mad about what's going on overseas. And anger's turning into malice. And malice is turning into hate. And hate is turning into vengeance. And they can't even lay that down when they come to church. They got to talk that up for 15 or 20 minutes before they can even get into worship. And, and maybe they got to have a, a session. You know, the Holy Ghost has got to fall before we can even let go of our stuff. And why is that? Because we're in a dark world and we're, we're being bombarded with all of its stuff. And that's just life. And that, there's no getting around that. But there is the church. And that's what we're supposed to be holding up when we talk about the community of believers. It's like, look, you're not going to get rid of the, the, the stuff. You're not going to get rid of the darkness. You're not going to get rid of the bad news and the anger and the malice and the vengeance. But you can have sanctuary the place where you hear a counter culture word that's what the church is supposed to be. that's what we are and this is why advent is a season in which we talk about joy joy in darkness how because the darkness is there and it isn't going anywhere but we are a people of joy because we have hope because we have peace and we are a people who should be hearing a counter word um Jesus should be, scratch that, he not should be, he is. Jesus is far-fetched in this world. Like if you hear the, the message of Jesus, it should sound 
pretty far-fetched. Like, mm, I don't know if this will work today. You know, I don't know if this, if this is, is going to be as effective in the, in the world we live in now as maybe as it was back here in Bible times or back in the olden days. That's the way it ought to feel because Jesus is so different than, the, than what's being offered to you from the world. Uh, it ought to sound, the gospel ought to sound too good to be true. And my fear is that a lot of times the gospel isn't even getting presented in a way in which anyone would call it too good to be true. It's being presented in a way in which it's just more bad news on top of all the bad news you sat through all week. And it's, it must be different than this if it has Jesus in the middle of it. And if Christ is resurrected, ascended, and seated at the right hand of the Father, and we truly, in this Advent season, we look back on a time when we were anticipating His arrival, but we also look forward to a time when we anticipate it again. Well, if that's the case, then if he's, that means God wins, and that means all shall be well, and if that's the case, then we ought to have the message, the message in the midst of darkness that gives people a countercultural word that's absolutely different from everything that you're hearing. And so to me, we are not taking the gospel serious if we have to make the gospel bleak and dark because we live in dark times. We're not taking serious what we have. The gospel is a proclamation. The gospel is good news. And I don't mean, hey, good, see, because we confuse this and we go, people make fun of us when we say good news. They go, well, all you want to do is tell people everything's okay. That's not good news. That's a lie. A lie is never good news. It's not good news to say to people, hey, everything's okay. No, it's not. It's a tragic world. There's darkness and there's pain and there's death. Everything's not okay. The good news is it's going to be. That's good news. The good news, and why? Not just platitudes, just slapping out little self-help principles. Why is it going to be? And then that gives us the chance to preach who Christ is, what He did, what He wants to do, what He's going to do. And, and when we do that, then we truly have a countercultural message. It's different than everything and anything that they can hear anywhere else. And if you can hear the message, well, that's too bold. I pray you hear the message of Jesus anywhere. Okay, so if you get to hear it somewhere, great. But don't expect that you're going to hear the good news anywhere but in the church. Not the real good news, the good news of what God has done through Christ. And there's pseudo versions of it that dress it up but don't have Jesus at its core. And so we can talk about peace and we can talk about an absence of war and we can talk about no violence. And everything I just said, you can do without Jesus. You can, you can chant for, you know, make love, not war. You can chant peace, not violence. You can chant no retaliation. You don't need Jesus. You could just be a pacifist. You could just be apathetic. You could just be straight up lazy. You don't need Jesus to be pass passive, apathetic, or lazy. So, so I'm, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about picking good principles and calling it the gospel. We're talking about an absolutely countercultural message. That is Jesus. That is a God who steps into our judgment and, and saves us. Not simply a God who brings a judgment, but a God who steps into judgment and through that judgment saves us. And so 
Yes, we preach a God who is the judge, but we also must preach a God who has judged through the cross and who must always be the same yesterday, today, and forever, and therefore must always judge through the cross. And so we're not telling the truth if we act like God's not a judge, but we're also not telling the truth if we act like God's justice stands separate from God's finished work or God's justice is different than God's love. And we can't... we have to bring both of those together. And that's what I mean by you're never going to hear that in the world. You're never going to hear that message of a God who is both God of judge, judgment and justice and the God of love and not on flip sides of the same coin, but that's who he is. So it's not as if God is, you know, you flip the coin and at certain generations, oh, God of love. And then, you know, everything sort of calms down. But oh, God of judgment. And then we got to live with that for a while as if God has to balance out the way that he is. And so we we bring them both together and we see them in the person of Jesus. And because of that, Paul says, our two-word title, 1 Thessalonians 5.16, Rejoice Always. It's just north of Jesus' wept for being the shortest verse in the Bible. And that's only because in the English the words are longer. but what, this is one of those that you could, you, Paul says a bunch of stuff right there in that chapter, things that he wants us to do. I grab rejoice always because this is the joy week. This is when we think about joy in terms of the Jesus that is, that is to come, both in the Old Testament, the Jesus that is to come for us. And how can we rejoice always in the middle of a darkened world? This is asking too much in a way. Well, it's not asking too much any more than pray without ceasing is asking too much. Pray without ceasing of course, doesn't mean that we spend 24 hours a day, seven days a week on our knees in prayer, but that we are constantly in an attitude of conversation with our Father. So rejoice always. Maybe we need to redefine what rejoice means because sometimes we think rejoice or show joy is something that only happens like during worship or during a song we like or when our hands are raised or when we're happy or when we're smiling. And this this is where it really gets tough. We think rejoicing can only happen when things are going well. And just like prayer without ceasing doesn't have anything to do with staying on your knees 24-7, but being in a conversation with your Father, always with an open ear and always with an open heart, rejoice always is the same way in which joy wins the day. Regardless of what's attacking you, not happiness wins the Happiness and joy aren't always the same thing. But which joy wins the day, this effervescence that comes from somewhere inside because you are not someone who's putting on a faith, but someone who's displaying a faith from the inside out. And therefore, we rejoice always, not because we're stupid and thankful that bad things are happening, or because we're naive and just don't know better, but because we can't help it. Just like we talk about, when we talk about hope, and, and Zechariah calls us prisoners of that hope because hope has, it's the only thing we can be is hopeful because we've, we've had too much of a revelation of him to be anything but hopeful. Paul's asking the same thing, to rejoice always because we've had too much experience with a good God to do anything but rejoice at that God. Yes, we can question him. Yes, we should, and we should wrestle with him, but we cannot help but rejoice always because of what he has done. So I ask the question that kicks off our Old Testament portion, and that is, 
how is this really possible? Like, what are the spiritual steps that get us into the place where we are a rejoice always kind of people? Because if we don't have some good, firm footing, then it's just a rah-rah. It's just a self-help. It's say this mantra, you know, it's just rejoice even if you don't want to, which is pretty useless at the end of the day, as far as I'm concerned, just teach people to just lie to themselves in the middle of whatever's going on. We have to have a reason that, that really matters. Something transformative has to have happened. And so I want to take you to an Old Testament passage. I'm going to read more tonight in this moment, in this passage than is normal or normal for me. Um, and I'm going to do it for a couple of reasons. First of all, I'm going to take you to the little book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah is a prophet who lives in the 7th century B.C. He lives somewhere around the reforms of Josiah, a king who causes an external revival in Israel and Judah that does not lead to an internal revival because I don't know if you've realized this or not. If you're in the church long enough, you'll pick up on this. External revivals rarely lead <laughs> to internal revivals. And so when people rah-rah around burning stuff and tearing things down and changing the rules and making new laws and everyone gets fired up and excited, most people go as quickly as they can to break those very rules that were just made because we restrict law and or we, we, we resist laws of restriction uh, and we don't really have any sort of inward change. Um, inward change has little to do with rah-rah and has a lot more to do with revelation. So having had Christ reveal the love of the Father to you does way more than a rah-rah revival. And I don't mind good rah-rahs. Um, I'd usually just rather it be associated with, you know, my sports team winning than I would with being told I have to shout because someone else quoted a verse that, you know, I don't know if it's in context or not. But um, that's just me being honest. Um, above it all, I like to have a revelation of the love of the Father and who Jesus is. And so that's transformative. So Zephaniah is in that period of time, somewhere around the, the external reforms. And Zephaniah has a message, like all the prophets of the Old Testament. Zephaniah is not very long. Um, his book's what's called a minor prophet. That's because of the length of his book. He's a contemporary of Isaiah, which means he lives sometime in that same circle of time in which the major prophet Isaiah is uh, pronouncing all these great messianic prophecies. So Zephaniah is one of those that kind of gets overlooked. I mean, he's not, he's not, we don't, most people don't quote a Zephaniah verse. Um, Maybe after tonight, you will at least uh, be somewhat impressed with what he pulls off in his little letter. Um, I want to take you into the darkness of Advent. And what I mean by the darkness is just the light's not shining. And, and when the light's not shining, things get cold and they get scary. And so a world in which people are dispersed all over the world in, Zeph in Zephaniah's day. Seventh century is a dark moment for Israel and Judah. They don't have their land. Um, they don't have their, or they're losing it. Uh, it seems as if every day a little more of who they are is eroding. Okay? They still have their land in the seventh century, but they're, they're heading towards a cliff quickly. And like the ground's coming out from under them. And Zephaniah is a tough read in the first half of the book because he's all darkness. And he's presenting a God who's not very happy and he's presenting the judge. And the ju when a judge is angry, he can wield this enormous amount of power. So 
I read this to you knowing that you know this will not be the end of the story. So when you get discouraged in Zephaniah 1, you can think, oh, it's going to get better. It will, I promise, but I hope that that darkness weighs on you a little bit. That helps you to experience Advent and the weighing of that darkness so that we can get to that anticipation. I'm going to read the entire first chapter, Zephaniah chapter 1. It's 18 verses long, which means can't do a ton of commentary or we won't get finished. So let's just let it get darker as we go. The word of the Lord, which came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, Amariah, Hezekiah, the days of Josiah. There's our external revival reform king, son of Ammon, king of Judah. Quote Marks, this is God talking. I will utterly consume everything from the face of the land, says the Lord. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the stumbling blocks along with the wicked. And I will cut off man from the face of the land. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off every trace of Baal from this place. That's a, that's a foreign god. The names of the idolatrous priests with the pagan priests. That's God's people and the Baal's people. Those who worship the host of heaven on the housetops. Those who worship and swear oaths by the Lord. Pagans worshipped on the housetops. The children of God worshipped and swore oaths by the Lord. But they, but they also swear by Milcom. So this is a mixture of religion. Those who turned back from following the Lord and not sought the Lord nor inquired of Him. Be silent in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has invited His guests, and it shall be in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes and the king's children and all such as are clothed with foreign apparel. In the same day I will punish all those who leap over the threshold, who fill their master's houses with violence and deceit. And there shall be on that day, says the Lord, the sound of a mournful cry from the fish gate and a wailing from the second quarter. This is old Jerusalem. And a loud crashing from the hills. Wail, you inhabitants of Maktesh, for all the merchant people are cut down. All those who handle money are cut off. It shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish the men who are settled in complacency and who say in their heart, the Lord will not do good, nor will He do evil. This is the complacency of the Lord just doesn't care. This is, a, this is those who say God's nowhere to be found. Therefore their goods shall become booty and their houses desolation. They'll build houses and they won't live in them. They'll plant vineyards, but they won't drink their wine. That's always a, that's a curse verse in the Old Testament. If you build but don't live, plant but don't drink, then that's as bad as it gets. That means you put all your labor in and you don't get any return at all. The great day of the Lord is near. It's near and it hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. Before you move on, that, that day of the Lord talk is all through the Bible. And it's always judgment. It's always the arrival of a God who's infuriated. And they're watching for this darkness that is coming. The, day, the noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. 15. There the mighty men shall cry out, that day is a day of wrath. Look at the, look at the poetry. Pop, 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 pop. Zephaniah is running you straight into darkness. A day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. I will bring distress upon men and they shall walk like blind men because they've sinned against the Lord and their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh, flesh like refuse. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. 
The whole land will be devoured by the fire of his jealousy, for he will make speedy riddance of all those who dwell in the land. So it just doesn't get much worse than this. And Zephaniah does it in a, in a cadence-driven style, a very poetic style, in which it's the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, this darkness that is about to fall on the day of the Lord. Now, the second chapter of Zephaniah is another 15 verses of, you guys need to fix it, you need to get it right. And the third chapter of Zephaniah is the wickedness of Jerusalem, and then a faithful group of people who are doing their best. And then Zephaniah 3, 14. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall see disaster no more. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear. Zion, let not your hands be weak. This, this you shall see disaster no more, the better translation in the Hebrew. You shall fear no longer. You shall fear no more. The Lord your God is in your midst. The Mighty One will save. Here's the poetry again. It's just brighter. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with His love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Okay. Do you feel the darkness shifts as you get near the end of the book and the darkness moves away and the light goes? This is the sort of the raising, the rising of the sun. Like, like the sun comes up in the east and the darkness that was there is dispelled. What's happened? Let me the next screen. Zephaniah's tone changes so much in chapter 3, verse 14 that some Old Testament scholars argue that someone else added to this text years later after the exiles returned home. And perhaps this is true. But what we're left with is one book, right? Zephaniah. And what we're left with there is a jump from darkness to light, from the arrival of the God that judges to the arrival of a Savior who has, quote, taken away our judgments, we just read, Quote, cast out our enemy, and quote, we shall fear no more. And it happens like that in Zephaniah. It's just bad, dark, bad, and dark, and bad, and dark. And then shout, Israel, rejoice, Zion. The Lord's taken away your judgment. He's cast out your enemy. There's no more reason to fear. And it's so contrasting and so quick of a turn, like jerking the wheel, that it's caused those scholars to go, what is Zephaniah doing? I mean, it's like... All of the sudden, he just changes his mind and has God saying, forget all that. I mean, all that stuff, forget your judgments are passed. So much so that our scholars wonder if it's the same guy. I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't care. <laughs> to be honest with you, I don't, it doesn't matter to me. I don't lose any sleep over whether the, the original Zephaniah wrote chapter 3, verse 14 on versus the, the guy that wrote the first two and a half chapters. What I do care about is that what we are left with in this little letter is one of the most amazing turns from darkness to light that you get in any Old Testament passage. And the fact that it's such a little book helps. Because if it were long, you'd have all these shifts. Because you see stuff like that in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. It's kind of zigs and zags. It goes back and forth to show this is how bad it is. This is how good it could be. This is how bad you're going to make it. I'm going to do it. But it's just this quick and abrupt thing. And it's not as if Zephaniah goes, boy, let's hope someday it's that way. 
It's a Zephaniah that goes, no, this is the way that it is. This is what God is doing. And so I want to just emphasize those three things, because as far as I'm concerned, what Zephaniah sees is what we see in the gospel of Jesus. We see a dark world where everything's bad and everything's going to hell. And then Jesus comes along and goes, Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem, I want to gather you into myself as a hen gathers her chicks. You, these are the things, Jesus says this, all these armies are going to compass you, bad things are going to happen to Israel, to the temple, all because you did not know the things that make for peace. And so what Jesus is doing with his life is he's showing the things that make for peace. He's giving an offer for all those who will accept him to come in. And so in effect, it's Jesus saying, rejoice, O Israel. Sing. Your judgments are taken away. I cast out your enemy. You can fear no more. So as far as for the purposes of let's make the sunrise, let's do those three things. Because to me, Zephaniah chapter 3 is a turn towards the new covenant. It's to show you that the God who you saw as coming in judgment comes also as your Savior. I didn't say He didn't come in judgment. I said He comes as your Savior in judgment. That's the gospel. So when people say God is a judge, you can say amen. Why wouldn't you? Boy, God's a judge. Amen. Yes, He is. And they go, He's about to do... He's about going to do this. Go, hmm, okay. I'm not, I don't want you to jump past Jesus. You had me. As long as you had God as a judge, you had me. And then you act like Jesus didn't come. Not even Zephaniah would do that. Zephaniah writes two and a half dark chapters and then goes, well, can't end this way. What do we got? How about your judgment's gone, your enemy's cast out, you don't have to be afraid anymore. Well, that sounds like the new covenant. And so it's not a God that can't judge. It's a God whose judgment is true and it looks different than we think that it looks. And so let's do those three, okay? These are all from Zephaniah. Number one, Zephaniah says, sing and rejoice. So I'm trying to give you three good places to step your foot as to why you should rejoice always. Remember, that's how we started. That was 1 Thessalonians 5.16. Rejoice always. Why? Because he's taken away your judgments. Now, I don't mean you don't stand in front of the judgment seat of Christ. And I don't mean that Christ is not constantly the good judge. Oh, yes, you do, and he is. But he's taken away our judgment in the way that we as a human family expect the God of justice to judge us, not because he has decided not to, but because he's already exacted the judgment people think needs to be in their future. <laughs> This is why we have to preach a crucified Christ. This is why we, we, we can't help but preach a crucified Christ. Because it's in that crucified Christ that we learn what judgment really is. Just word of warning. If you're flipping to the back of your Bible and you've been mastering studying the book of Revelation because you want to understand the judgment and justice of God, You need to backtrack to the Gospels to watch Jesus go to the cross and resurrect if you really want to understand the judgment and justice of God. And that way, then, when you get to Revelation, what you can do is see an unveiling of Jesus instead of what you think are cosmic prophetic events at the end of the world. And so probably nobody does a better job at the judicial side 
of the gospel message than the Apostle Paul. He's great at it. And if you want to know what the courtroom of heaven has to say about you, you go to Paul. And we needed a Paul because if you, if you want to know a good legal case, you need someone that knows how to cite previous cases. You know, like they need to be able to say such and so versus so and so, 1886, this happened. You want that lawyer, the guy that knows precedent, that's the word. Well, there was nobody better than Paul because Saul of Tarsus, he's full of precedent. Like he knows the precedent. And so when he writes, he writes from a judicial side. And so if we want to talk judgment and justice, and we, we talk Paul, this is probably his masterwork, as far as I'm concerned, on that very topic, which is judgment. 2 Corinthians 5. I know you know this, but man, do we need a refresher. Verse 18. All things are of God. That's good all by itself. All things are of God. He's reconciled us to Himself through Jesus Christ. He's given us the ministry of reconciliation. What is that ministry? God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. God was actually in Christ bringing the world back. It, had, it was the world that had gone astray. God didn't take a step back from man. Man took ten steps back from God. And so God is reconciling the world back to Himself through Christ. How does He do it? By not imputing their trespasses to them. That word imputing, here's why you need a good legal mind like Paul. That word imputing is really a bookkeeping term. It's, it's to account. It's done deal. It's, it's really more of an accounting term even than a legal term. Not counting, not writing in the ledger their trespasses against them. So how can God reconcile the world back to Himself with all this garbage people have done? Well, the way that God could do it is that He could move into Christ and not count against the world what they are doing, but instead have it count in Christ. He's committed to us that word. That leads us to 2021. Now then, because of that, we're ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That's the, to, as far as I can see, that's the only acceptable time for you to go, folks, I'm pleading with you. God is speaking through me to plead with you. What better come out of your word, out of your mouth next is be reconciled to God. He's not counting your sins against you. Jesus has already done this for you. I plead with you to reconcile yourself to that knowledge. And this 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteous of God in him. And so Christ becomes the sin of the world and God doesn't kill his son at the cross. God judges sin at the cross. Man killed Jesus. And Jesus steps into the death voluntarily so that he can experience the death that you and I will experience. So that he can step into what we are. And you're carrying, you're carrying the guilt of the human family. Um, in regards to, or you're carrying the guilt of your experience, but you're carrying the sin of the human family in old Adam so that the, the new Adam, the last Adam, can pay for you. I, I don't, I never, I'm not really big, a big fan of the theological term original sin just because what most people think that means is you're born a sinner 
because of Adam's sin, Adam's sin passes to you. Um, I think that's an unfortunate misunderstanding of Paul. Um, you don't need to carry Adam's sin. You've got plenty of your own. Um, however, I do agree with the doctrine of original sin. If by sin you mean because of Adam's sin, which brings forth death, you will die. Yes, you carry death in you. You're going to die. I mean, that, that shouldn't be a real stunner to you. You know, you will die someday. Why? Because of human family. But unfortunately, when most people preach original sin, they're actually preaching original guilt. So they're saying Adam was guilty, therefore you're guilty. No. Adam was guilty and therefore he died and he passed death onto all of us so that all of us die. All of us are human. But you carry the guilt for what you do. Jesus doesn't just take the sin of Adam. He takes... He doesn't count our trespasses against us. So he takes into himself everything that we've done and then that sin and evil are judged at the cross. That allows Zephaniah, who has no chance to understand any of that, granted, but that allows Zephaniah to say, he's taken away our judgments. And so now I don't have to worry about the sin of the world if... I believe Jesus has taken the sin of the world. I don't have to worry about Paul White taking the sin of the world or Paul White taking Paul White's sin. But because I take that to Jesus and an exchange is that he didn't know sin but became sin so that I could be the righteousness of God. That leads me to number two. Here's what Zephaniah said. He takes away our judgments. And number two, he cast out our enemy. Jesus says it this way in, in John chapter 12, verse 31. And this is right before Jesus is crucified. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. So the cross is not simply the place Jesus dies. It's the place where the enemy of God, the enemy of the family of man, is cast out of the seat of authority over man. And so Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, casts out the enemy. And in doing so, he casts out his power. John says he'd come to destroy the works of the devil. Hebrews 2.14 says, Just as the children partook of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared the same, that through death, this is through dying, Jesus would destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. And so Zephaniah could not have been thinking about the devil being defeated at Calvary, but he nailed it anyway, because the reason I can rejoice always is my judgment's been taken away. Jesus has been judged as sin. My enemy's been cast out. Jesus promised that's the case. Now is the prince of this world cast out. He who had the power of death has no more power over you. And that leads me to the third reason I can rejoice evermore is that I fear no more. And Put my foot solid on the fact that I don't have to fear, but watch these all kind of come together in this passage from 1 John 4. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Whatever the day of judgment looks like, you don't have to worry, because as He is, so are we in this world. There's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. I'm not crazy about this translation right here. New King James kind of misses that word on torment, because that word's actually closer to punishment. Fear involves the idea of being punished. That's what you're scared of. 
You're not, being, you're not scared you're going to be tormented. You're scared you're going to get punished. What are you going to get punished for? All the stuff you did. But he who fears hasn't been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. So our judgment has been taken away because Christ has stepped into it. Our enemy has been cast out because Christ is now King of kings and Lord of lords. And our fear is no more because as he is, so are we in this world. And we don't have to worry in the day of judgment. That leads us all the way back to... Rejoice always. Why? Not because it's a platitude or a bumper sticker or a t-shirt, but because you have actual things you can step your foot on. My judgment is accomplished. My enemy is cast out. And I don't have any reason to fear anymore. So in the middle of a dark world that isn't getting any better, not in that respect, it's not lighting itself is my point. Oh, I think the world's a better place to live now than it used to be. And I think the world is improving. But, it, but the darkness is dark. <laughs> darkness doesn't fix darkness. That's the point. In the middle of a dark world, there's so many options for you to be afraid and scared and full of anger and vengeance. How can you rejoice always? You can't just talk yourself into it. You can't just close your eyes and try really hard and squeeze. You know, worship your way into rejoicing. Um, I don't think those things work. I'm just being honest. And maybe, and, and I'm, I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't agree you guys should just worship your way into, into joy. Worship your way into rejoicing. Um, the truth is, is that a lot of times we, re, we worship our way into laying some stuff down, yes, and we, we, maybe we worship our way into to His presence as a community, yes, but that doesn't equip us to rejoice always because they played our favorite song and we finally found the right groove and got, really got pumped. Um, this is way bigger than, than effort. It's something you can hold on to. It's why we light candles in Advent, because it's just a flicker of light in the middle of the darkness. It's not the whole light. It's just a flicker. Your rejoicing always doesn't change the world, but it changes the world right in front of you. That's what a candle does. It doesn't light the whole room, but it, takes, it goes wherever you go. And so rejoicing always isn't going to fix what's going on in the Middle East. Rejoicing always isn't going to fix what's happening with your cousin and, your, and at work. But it is going to be your light that you carry in the middle of whatever darkness you walk into. And that, and that can't be taken away from you. And it's not just a choice you make. It's the end result of the faith that you have in this God that Zephaniah tries to tell us about. So I say to you, as Paul said, rejoice always. Let's pray and let's pray for the revelation, not just the revival, but the revelation for all of these things, judgment taken away, casting out our enemies, fearing no more, to become real in us so that rejoicing always is not a platitude and it's not just something we hope to do. Father, we're so thankful for you and your love and we're so thankful for your word and, and I thank you for these beautiful moments with my friends just to talk about, I get to talk about the Word and I get to talk about Jesus, but we have these beautiful encounters where you speak things into us through your Word that are transformative, both in this room and for people who watch. And the, the transformation is not, it's, sometimes it's so subtle and so small, and yet it's so real because you are the one doing the transforming. You have prompted us through your word to rejoice always. And we're in a world where rejoicing seems really silly. 
because people will tell you that there's not anything to rejoice over or that if you're rejoicing, you're ignorant because you should be crying over the state of the world. Father, we don't take our cues from this system. We rejoice always because we carry a light in the middle of darkness that tells us that our judgment has been exacted in Christ, that our enemy is powerless and that we have nothing to fear. If that doesn't give us reason to rejoice, I don't know what will. And I pray a revelation of that in our soul. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.